Everyone else, I'd encourage you to open up in your Bibles to Romans 15. Romans chapter 15. We will be starting in Romans 15, verse 14 this morning and entering into some of the, the closing thoughts that the Apostle Paul has for the church in Rome, as well as for us. And still, still a few more weeks we have left in Romans, but we're, we're definitely now uh, entering into kind of the epilogue, the, the closing of this letter. And in this portion of Scripture that we'll be in this morning and into next week, we will get to see the specific calling that God had given Paul and really see what Paul's life, life motto was. I mean, what drove Paul? What was the aim of his life? What was he passionate about? I mean, Paul had some pretty big goals. He had some pretty big callings on his life. But there's a reason that at the point of him writing this letter to the Romans, there's a reason that Paul had not yet been able to get to Rome. He, he, he wanted to get to Rome, but, but there were some other priorities that he had first. And now there's a reason that he does want to come to Rome even now. If you skip down to verse 22, which is a verse we won't necessarily be covering this morning, but it says in Romans 15, 22, he says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Well, what is the reason? What has Paul made his life's ambition? And we will see that it all centers around his life motto. Because a life motto, I mean, or, or just a motto in general, a catchphrase in general, what it does is it, it helps you focus in your attention on what you are ultimately striving after and striving for. It helps you know what to say yes to and what to say no to. I mean, Paul was wanting to get to Rome, but he, he had to say no for a little while because there were other things he had to say yes to first. And so this is what a life motto does. It, it, it reminds you as to what your priorities are in life. And church, what's your life motto? Or, or what are you ambitious for in life? There are a multitude of things that you can seek after in this life, and there are a multitude of mottos you can have in your life. For example, let me give you some mottos that are commonly getting passed around out there. These aren't necessarily biblical mottos or catchphrases, but, but um, here are some that you've probably heard before floating around that, that help people block out the noise and the distractions of life and focus in on what they are aiming their lives at. Okay, here are some examples. Uh, be the change you wish to see in the world. Okay, that, this, that's helping people who are just worried about complaining about all the changes going, you know, all the things that need change in the world. That helps them focus in on, no, I'm going to be the change that I want to see in the world. Uh, what about this motto? Uh, don't sweat the small stuff. You've heard that before. One day at a time. Carpe diem, seize the day. Progress, not perfection. What about this one? Be all that you can be. That's, a, that's, a, that's one we've heard, right? That's a, that's a, a slogan or a, a marketing strategy of the army. And, and we, have, we have lots of great military folk, people that are serving in the military right now um, and, uh, and who, are, who are living by that. But as one who used to give physicals for those uh, who are trying to get a doctor's excuse to get out of their PT test at Atterbury, I can say that I'm not sure everyone's living by that motto, okay? Be all that you can be. But that's, that, that's their motto. That, that should try to help keep you on the right track track, right, in the, in the military. What about this motto? Uh, grow through what you go through. It's kind of catchy. It's kind of catchy. Go th grow through what you go through. Uh, never let sadness of your past, never let the sadness of your past or the fear of your future ruin the happiness of your present. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Fake it till you make it. Now, Unfortunately, this one is a common one in the medical field. I can attest to, okay, every July when there's new residents, new interns entering into the healthcare, I mean, it's just fake it till you make it, right? That's you're just trying to get through. 
You probably know this one. When, life's, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, okay? Or throw the lemons back if you really aren't into lemonade. Uh, just do it, Nike. Now, that one will probably get you into trouble if you just, uh, you know, apply that motto to everything in life. Now, some of those mottos that I listed, some are more true and wise than others. Some of those God would probably be more for and more against. But what sorts of mottos does God want us to have? And what does God want us to be ambitious for? and focused on, and and aiming our lives at. And that's what I hope that you walk away from today prayerfully considering and starting to ask the Lord what things that you are supposed to be about. What things are you supposed to devote your life to? What should a Christian's life motto be? What should we be ambitious for? For example, William Carey, who was a missionary to India, one of his mottos was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, that's a pretty good one. If you don't have your own, I mean, you can use that one until you've you've developed your own. But expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. What's your motto? What are maybe some of your mottos? What are your ambitions in life? What are you striving after aiming your life at. Now, where we are at in Romans, uh, Pastor Kevin had mentioned it it has been a couple of weeks, and he read that call to worship to us, and and we saw that that we worship this God God of hope, and we learned in those previous passages that God desires us to abound in hope. But not only does he desire us to abound in hope, he empowers us to abound in hope so that people all across the globe would hope in him. And now Paul is going to show us that because of this hope that we have, we should be ambitious like he is. We should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. However, because of sin, our ambitions often turn into selfish ambitions. And they can become corrupted and distorted by pride and envy and idolatry. And instead of attempting great things for God, we can sinfully become all about attempting great things for ourselves. But this morning, through seeing what was driving Paul, we will see what should guide our ambitions and what should guide our, the, the, the mottos of our life and how we are to be ambitious But ultimately, we are to be ambitious for God. And that is the title of this morning's sermon, Be Ambitious for God. Uh, Someone a few weeks ago was keeping track of how many times I used the word hope, uh, and it was a lot. And so they need to keep track this morning of how many times I say, be ambitious for God. Okay, you're going to hear that over and over, and I want it to stick with you. Okay, Micah, you with me? Be ambitious for God. I want you to keep track, and I want you to remember that the rest of your life, all right? So we're going to go about trying to understand godly ambition in four parts. First, godly ambition is from God's sovereign grace. Second, godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Third, Godly ambition is empowered by God's Spirit. And fourth, godly ambition is backed by God's Word. I'll repeat those throughout the sermon if you didn't get a chance to get those down. But let's pray, and then let's ask the Lord. I mean, let's let's pray and ask the Lord for help this morning. Father, we do thank you for your Word. And God, we ask that you would Lord, give us the right focus and attention of our minds as well as our hearts to be engaged with what you would have for us this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask for that you would give, give light to this passage of Scripture, that you would bring it to life in our lives, that it would um, 
that it would take deep root in our hearts and bear fruit, God. We ask that what is proclaimed, that the truth, that as, as the truth of your word is proclaimed this morning, that it may not quickly be forgotten or, or discarded. But Lord, we ask that your word would inform us and it would transform us and it would change us. And God, that you would stir up in us godly ambition and that we would live lives that are ambitious for you. So guard us against the error and the sin that can creep in and distort this topic. And Lord, guide us in your ways. May your word be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Now Paul is pretty encouraging here to the Roman Christians. I mean, he's just written them a glorious letter full of some glorious doctrine. But he pauses here to give them, he gives them a word of encouragement. He says that he sees in them and he hears of them that they are, they are full of goodness and that they are filled with knowledge, which it is important to have both goodness and knowledge. One without the other is really a dangerous, scary thing and does a lot of harm. But when someone is filled with goodness and knowledge, and that's what he's saying here of the Roman Christians, when someone has goodness and knowledge, then they are therefore able to instruct one another. Instruct is a word that it's getting at the idea of advising and encouraging and teaching and warning one another. To instruct one another is to be able to give biblical counsel to one another. And this is a sign of a healthy church, a church that does not just rely upon the pastors to have to be the ones to counsel and instruct every single person, but a church that can take the knowledge and goodness they're receiving from the the word, and they can now go and encourage and admonish and instruct and counsel one another. Oh, that's the sign of a healthy church. And so let me take a moment here to encourage you, Franklin City Church, that I I see this happening here. I see this happening and developing and growing more and more here. There have been things recently that in the first few years of, of our church, they would have always had to have been handled by one of the pastors. But now I'm hearing more and more of people who are able to instruct and encourage and give counsel to one another. And that's a beautiful, that's a glorious thing. And so let's keep leaning into that. Let's keep seeing that happen here. Let's keep being filled with goodness and knowledge and being able to take the word to one another and give biblical counsel to one another. What's left for the Apostle Paul and the pastors here is simply to remind them boldly of the truth of God's word. And, and, and no matter how good you get at giving counsel to one another, I promise you, as your pastors, we will always commit to reminding you boldly of the truth of God's word. And it is Paul's task, and it is one of Paul's ambitions to remind the churches boldly of the truth of God's word. Why? Well, look at the end of verse 15. He says, because of the grace given me by God. Paul recognizes from the start that what he's ambitious for, what he's passionate about, he's about it because of the sovereign grace of God that has given it to him. Right? This is from God's sovereign grace. Let me remind you of what we've already learned about back in Romans 12, where we were talking about spiritual gifts. We learned that each and every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit who now indwells us and gifts us with spiritual gifts. But we don't all get the same gifts. And we don't get to choose the gifts we have. 
but we receive them by the sovereign grace of God. And God gifts us and he calls us all differently to different tasks. And Paul tells us what his is. He says down in verse 20, he says that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel where where Christ has not been named. He says that the way that God has called him to be ambitious for God is to preach Christ to those who've never heard. Now, if we are ambitious for God, we should all be excited about Christ being proclaimed in places that have never heard. But it doesn't necessarily mean that being ambitious for God is going to look exactly the same for each and every one of us. He tells us that he hasn't sovereignly been called by God to build upon someone else's foundation, But he does instruct the churches that someone should be building upon the foundation. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let let each one take care how he builds upon it. So Paul is not anti-building upon the foundation. His goal for the world is not for it to just be full of concrete slabs, just, just a bunch of foundations laid everywhere. No, that's what Paul is supposed to be about. He's supposed to be about laying all these foundations, pouring the slab, right? Getting all the foundations ready. But then he says, hey, some Christians are going to be called to come, up, come after me and shepherd and pastor and build upon these foundations that I'm laying. And so there are going to be some Christians that will be called like Paul to commit their lives to being the pioneer missionaries, to be the church planters, to be the evangelists, to take the name of Christ to those who have never heard. And their life motto and their life's ambition is going to be much similar to what Paul's is. Although not exactly the same. He was an apostle and and we are not. But maybe some of you, this is how God is stirring in your heart to be ambitious for God. It is to take the name of Christ to places where his name has not been named, to those who have never heard the good news of Jesus. We should all be excited and encouraged and a part of that work, but some of us, this is going to be our life's aim. This is going to be what we strive after. And if that is you, hear me, be ambitious for God. Be ambitious for God. But then there are going to be other Christians who God sovereignly and graciously calls to to shepherd and to build upon the foundations that have been laid. There are Christians that God has sovereignly and graciously called to be ambitious for God, but he's called them to be ambitious for God in in the church. He's called them to be ambitious for God amongst a bunch of church kids. He's called them to be ambitious for God in the medical field, to be ambitious for God in the business world, to be ambitious for God in construction, to be ambitious for God in education, to be ambitious for God in the household, to be ambitious for God in schools, to be ambitious for God in the arts, to be ambitious for God in the media, to be ambitious for God in technology, to be ambitious for God in politics. Mike, are you keeping up with this? Be ambitious for God. Be ambitious for God. Church, what are you ambitious for? How has the sovereign grace of God equipped you to be ambitious for God in his world? We are to be ambitious for God, but we must see the source of godly ambition, and that is that godly ambition is from God's sovereign grace. Charles Spurgeon, the first quote of a couple that I'll share of his this morning, he says, Every man should give most attention Every man should give most attention to that part of the work with which the Lord has entrusted him. 
with the one pure motive that God may be glorified thereby. Paul was insatiable for the glory of God and the prosperity of the church. Let us be filled with that same zeal. Every man should give most attention to that part of the work with which the Lord has entrusted him. How has the Lord entrusted you to be ambitious for him? Spurgeon, though, he also says in that quote, right, our ultimate goal is for God to be glorified. And so godly ambition is is from God's sovereign grace. But the second point is that we see that godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Look back at Romans 15, verse 16. He says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. The word that Paul uses for minister in verse 16 is a word in the Greek that means servant. But it's not the word doulos that he typically uses that means slave or bondservant. It's a word that if you saw it in the Greek, it would remind you of our English word for liturgy. Because what he is saying here is that he was called by Christ to be a minister or to be a servant to the Gentiles, but with using this specific word for minister or for servant, he's painting us the imagery of worship. He says that he is a servant, but he's serving in a similar way as the priest did in the temple, which would have been a bit shocking to these Christians and to the Gentile Christians in first century Rome because the Gentiles were excluded from the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, they were allowed to be in the outer courts, but they weren't allowed to go where the Jews were allowed to go. But Paul says here that he is now like a priest And the Gentiles themselves are like holy and acceptable offerings to God. And that he's being ambitious for God with the ultimate goal of God being worshipped. For the worship of God to be increased throughout the world. For God to be worshipped and glorified by Paul bringing about the obedience of the Gentiles by their word and by their deeds through what they say and what they do. This is how they worship God. And this is how we worship God, church. Through what we say and through what we do. Through what we say and through what we sing and through what we pray and by how we live. This is how we worship God. Godly ambition is for the glory of God, bringing about the obedience of faith, bringing about more worshipers of God, those who worship him through what they say and how they live. We are now a part of this. And we get to continue to be a part of this as we see more and more worshipers of God throughout the world. Godly ambition is for the glory of God, but it is also for the joy of the one worshiping. I mean, Paul here is proud of the work that he's doing. He's, he's proud of it, or at least the, the work that Christ is doing through him. And he knows, and he knows that people will find the most, their most joy and, and, and their most satisfaction in life when they are doing what they were created to do. And what were we created to do? We were created to be worshipers of God with our words and with our deeds for the glory of God, to to be glory reflectors, not glory absorbers. But this is oftentimes where we can get off track in our ambition. This is oftentimes where kind of this good-intentioned ambition starts, and this is where it can get off track, so we need to pay attention, okay? Because we can start off with good intentions, godly ambitions, and somehow we end up losing our way, (laughs) And no longer being ambitious 
for the glory of God, but instead being ambitious for the glory of ourselves. Our ambitions for God can turn into selfish ambitions. I remember the, in the first year of Franklin City Church, our, our church planting network, Harbor Network, uh, had me be a part of a new pastor's cohort. And this was uh, 10 other guys from around the country who were in their first year of a new church plant. And we would gather throughout the year for teaching and for coaching and for prayer and encouragement and rest. And one of the guys that we met with us and, and gave us some counsel was uh, a man named Tim Belts. And Tim Belts had previously been the executive pastor uh, for Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill out in Seattle. And we were going around talking about what we were afraid of, what scared us as new pastors of new churches. And some of the guys were saying things like, I'm afraid no one's going to show up. I'm afraid people are going to come in and be divisive or try to get power and, and divide those that we have. I'm afraid we won't have the money to pay the bills or to find a place to gather. I'm afraid of the toll that this is going to take on my family. And I could probably echo, I mean, th those were all of my fears as we, as we started out as well. And I had forgotten what Tim Belts had said to us, and the Lord reminded me of it recently. And he said something to the effect of, um, he said, I'm afraid that all the things you are ambitious for as first-year church planters, he said, I'm afraid that you will succeed too quickly. He said, success can do scary things to the heart. And those are words that will probably always stick with me and should probably always stick with you. Success can do scary things to the heart. It can. And this is true not just for pastors. Success can do scary things to the heart. And God knows this. God knows this. It's not a surprise to him. And so listen, this, this sermon might seem or feel like a little bit of a pep rally, like we're all going to go be ambitious for God. We're going to go conquer the world. We're going to run out of here just jacked and hype and ready to go. But be warned, church. We are going to go out of here excited. But be warned, church. Success can do scary things to the heart. And God knows this. And so you know what he in his wisdom typically allows in our lives in the midst of our ambitious pursuits? I don't want you to be surprised by this. Too often we are surprised by this. He allows two things into our lives as we are ambitiously pursuing things for him. Two things, setbacks and disappointments. Setbacks and disappointments. He wants us to be ambitious for his glory. This is what we mean when we say be ambitious for God. He wants us to be ambitious for his glory, but he knows that if we don't experience setbacks and disappointments, that all too easily pride and selfishness and envy and jealousy and idolatry and selfish ambition all can start to creep into a person's heart and into a church. And therefore, he many times will bring about setbacks and disappointments, not to silence our ambitions, but to sanctify our ambitions. Many times he will bring about setbacks and disappointments not to silence our ambitions but to sanctify our ambitions so that we would rely upon his grace and his power and glorify and enjoy him. And so maybe you're sitting here right now and you feel like, yes, God has sovereignly and graciously given me a distinct way that, that you feel like you are called to be ambitious for God. But more times than not, I'm going to guess that you've experienced some degree of setbacks and disappointments in your pursuit. And listen, hear me, church. This is typically how God works. And I don't think it's because he wants you to be less ambitious. 
but he wants to sanctify your ambitions and likely your ambitions are too small anyway. And he's trying to work something that's even bigger and better and greater than what you were even imagining. But he allows setbacks and disappointments into our lives, not to silence our ambitions, but to sanctify them, to purify them. I mean, you think Paul's thorn in the flesh was part of his 10-year plan of his life? Think that was on the vision board of of the next five to 10-year plan for Paul, that he's going to have this thorn in the flesh? No, but it was part of God's plan for Paul's life. And God many times will bring about setbacks and disappointments not to silence our ambitions, but to sanctify them. And therefore, hear me, church, do not be discouraged in the setbacks of life. Do not be discouraged in the setbacks of life. See these as opportunities to grow and to learn and be humble enough to see that success without some setbacks could do scary things with your heart. Dave Harvey, in his book, uh, Rescuing Ambition, which will be one of the books soon, soon out in our bookstore, he gives this quote. He says, How we live when ambitions are delayed significantly shapes who we become. How we live when ambitions are delayed, significantly shapes who we become. Godly ambition is from God's sovereign grace. Godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Third, godly ambition is empowered by God's spirit. Look back at Romans 15, verse 19. By the power of signs and wonders... By the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, which is really close to modern-day Kosovo, and you can be praying for John Spears, who's there. He's right now probably already finished worshiping, building upon the foundation that Paul laid there. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Paul recognizes and is teaching us that this ambition that he's received from God, that he is carrying and living for the glory of God, but he's, he's doing it not by his own strength and power, but he's doing it by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, certainly there were signs and wonders that the Spirit performed through him as, as a sign of his apostleship that, that God might not perform through us. But all Christians are to live and be ambitious for the glory of God by the power of the Spirit of God. If we start running in our own strength and relying upon our own resources and relying upon the wisdom of the world, oh, we are in danger of being ambitious in our own strength and in our own power. And when we are being ambitious in our own strength and in our own power, we will spaz out, then freak out, then burn out, and one day you'll check out. Okay, that's my spectrum of where I know I'm at. Sometimes, you know, in a, in a, in a busy season, I'm, I'm, I'm between spaz out and freak out, but I'm really trying not to get to the burnout because I definitely don't want to get to the checked out stage, okay? But this is, where, this is what happens when you're operating in your own strength and in your own power. I mean, this is, this is the, the inevitable course that will come. This is why there are those, right, that have, that have done and attempted so many great things for the Lord, and yet at the end, they've just kind of checked out. Why? Well, I mean, lots of reasons for that. But one we have to acknowledge is that we can't operate in our own strength and our own power. It has to be relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. If we keep operating in our strengths, we will spaz out, freak out, burn out, and one day check out. And when we check out, that is when we, be, we become the unambitious Christian. Being ambitious for selfish pursuits and being an unambitious Christian, I would say, are two equally wrong and bad things. If you've just checked out, 
if you're just content to kind of just play it safe, sit back, and just wait for the Lord's return, I would encourage you to, to seek the Lord in that and whether or not you are living obediently to his call on your life. We don't want to check out as Christians. We don't want to be unambitious Christians. We don't want to be Christians who are trying to operate and carry on in our own power and in our own strength. Burnout and checking out will inevitably be where that leads unless we cry out to God and rely and depend upon his spirit to empower us and strengthen us and equip us for the work that he has for us each and every day. Church, if you are in a place where you feel like you are too weak to do what God is calling you to do, praise God. You're in a good place. You're in a good place. Because the weak person who realizes they are weak will seek the Lord and daily cry out to him. Right? The dangerous position to be in is the weak person who thinks they are strong and therefore has no need to be with the Lord, has no need to rely upon his brothers and sisters, right? has no need of these things. But the weak person who realizes they are weak, they will seek the Lord. They will seek his strength. They will cry out to him. The weak person who realizes that they are weak will seek help from the body of Christ. They will, they will work well with others because they realize They've got to utilize the spiritual gifts of one another in order to accomplish this ambition that God has laid on their life. The weak person who realizes they are weak, they realize that, man, they cannot do this all on their own. They do not have the strength and the gifts to carry out what God has called them to be ambitious about. They see their need to work synergistically with the body of Christ all around them. The weak person who realizes they are weak, these people are also going to be more willing to take risks for the glory of God than play it safe. The weak person who thinks they are strong, their lives are typically defined by playing it safe. Because they, they're trusting in their own resources. They're relying upon their own resources. They're trusting in their own strength. And so when an individual or a church or a people become this like they, they're resting in their own strength, man, they just flip it into the unambitious Christian play it safe mode. But the weak person who realizes they are weak They're not bound to have to play it safe because they know that all they have is the Lord's anyway. They've been living dependently upon him every day anyway. And they have learned to be content in times of plenty and in times of want, always seeing themselves as children taking part in their father's work. The weak person who realizes they are weak sees themselves as a child taking part in their father's work. The weak person who thinks they're strong, I mean, they, they take themselves really seriously, like it all depends upon them. Church, the only reason we can work for God is because of the work of Christ. And Christ did the real work. He did the hard work. He did the heavy lifting. And let me tell you, Jesus was tempted to take a shortcut to glory. He was tempted to get out of some work, but he refused. He was tempted to rely on the wisdom of men. He was tempted to fear the coming cross, but he kept submitting himself to the will of the Father and kept relying upon the power of the Spirit. And to be ambitious by the power of the Spirit means that we have to look to Christ and see what his work accomplished The cross seemed like a setback and a disappointment, didn't it? We talked about this on Good Friday. The cross seemed like a setback. It was a disappointment at the time to the disciples, but not to Christ. He saw the perceived setback as the only way to sanctify a people for himself. 
And when tempted to take a shortcut to glory, he focused his attention even more on the task that the Father had given him to do. In Luke 9, 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. This means he set his face. He was determined to go to Jerusalem where he knew he would be arrested and whipped and beaten and mocked and spit on and crucified. But he was determined to go there. He knew the ultimate plan and purpose for his life, and he would not be distracted or discouraged from setting his face upon Jerusalem and upon the cross. He was not deterred by the discomfort or the pain or the agony that was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And, oh, church, you see, we can be empowered by the Spirit of God to be ambitious for God, We can expect great things from God and attempt great things for God because Jesus set his face to go to the cross for us. What a king. What a savior. What a Lord. What a God. What a joy it is to be ambitious for Jesus who set his face to go to the cross. When you become discouraged, when you become dissuaded, when you become starting to become deterred from being ambitious for God and using your specific gifts and callings to carry out the mission of God in this world, when you start to be distracted from it and you just want to check out and pull back and just be the unambitious Christian, oh, remember your Savior who set his face on the cross for you. He was determined to get to the cross for you. My second quote from Charles Spurgeon today, it's a longer one, stick with me. He says, the true soldier is an ambitious being. He pants for honor, seeks for glory. On the field of strife, he gathers his laurels and amidst the thousand dangers, he reaps renown. The Christian is fired by higher ambitions than any earthly warrior ever knew. He sees a crown that can never fade. He loves a king who, best of all, is worthy to be served. He has a motive within him which moves him to the noble deeds, a divine spirit impelling him to the most self-sacrificing actions. O church, see that see that we should be the most ambitious people in the world because we have a king who is worthy of it, because we have a savior who set his face on the cross for us. We have higher ambitions than anyone on this earth could even imagine. We see a crown that can never fade, and we love a king who is beyond worthy of it. Godly ambition is from God's sovereign grace. Godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Godly ambition is empowered by God's Spirit. And finally, godly ambition is backed by God's Word. Look back at Romans 15, verse 20. He says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, been named lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written... And he's quoting scripture here. Anytime you see as it is written, he's quoting scripture. He says, hey, this is my life motto. This is my godly ambition, but it's backed by scripture. It's not backed by Nike or anyone else. It's backed by scripture. He says what God has called him to do, he, he, excuse me, he sees what God has called him to do as a partial fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52. He says, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Paul makes it his ambition, or depending on your translation, his life's aim, what he's striving for, his goal, what he's aspiring to. 
He is aiming his life. He is striving to preach the gospel to those who have never heard the good news of Jesus. And this ambition, it is, it is biblical. It is backed by scripture. It is clearly part of God's revealed will and plan for this world. And so as God helps you develop some mottos for your life, as God helps you and lays certain maybe scriptures on your heart and helps, helps direct your ambition in life, let's make sure that they are backed by and supported by God's word. Let's make sure that these ambitions, these mottos of our lives are, are, um, are supported and encouraged and based upon the truth of scripture. And maybe at first, some of our mottos that we need to have, maybe they're just simply scripture. Maybe it's just simply a verse, a truth. Like you don't have to sweat trying to come up with a catchy uh, catchphrase or something for yourself. But maybe you have just one verse that reminds you how God has called you to be ambitious for him. Maybe there's just one verse or truth that you can hold on to in this current season of life. Maybe it's, maybe it's a bit overwhelming thinking of like a life motto. I realize that's a big commitment to make, like one motto for the rest of your life. But, but maybe there's just something for this next month in this current season that you're in, this one verse that you need to hold on to and set your mind on that can help focus your attention on how God has called you to be ambitious for him. Because maybe you are in a season of setbacks and disappointments right now. Some of you are. And some of you, if you're not, you will soon be. Maybe some of you, your ambitions for God have been delayed. They've been frustrated. Charles Simeon knew something of of this. He pastored a church for 12 years where the majority of the congregation opposed him. The church closed and locked the pews so that people could not sit down in church. And therefore, the few that came to worship, the few that came to hear him preach, they had to just stand or sit in the aisles. And he preached to people standing in the aisles for 12 years. There, there were times in our first couple of years, like a few families were on vacation, and I was like, I thought this was all falling apart. He preached for 12 years with the majority of the church opposing him and people standing in the aisles, sitting on the floors, because he kept going back and back again to Lamentations 3.25. Lamentations 3.25, we'll have it up here on the screen. This is what he kept, would go, kept, kept going back to. The Lord is good to those who wait for him to the soul who seeks him. Twelve years. Twelve years. I mean, some of us can't even wait a week for the Lord. God, do something. Come on, do something here. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. If Christ can set his face on Jerusalem, we can set our faces on a verse like this and wait for the Lord and seek the Lord. Martin Luther faced a decent amount of resistance and pushback in his life, I think we can say. And in the face of opposition, he kept, would always tell himself, we preach always him probably would have worded it differently, but that's how he said it. We preach always him. Raymond Lowell, a missionary to the Muslims, lived by the phrase, I have one passion. It is he. It is he. I have one passion. It is he. It is he. Charles Wesley would constantly sing to himself, thou, O Christ, are all I want. More than all in thee I find. When the Lord called me into ministry, he used the words from John 21 that he spoke to Peter that just shook my soul down to its core and still resonates within me even to this day when he told Peter to feed my sheep. And this, this for me has turned into a life motto that I believe that God has sovereignly and graciously called me to get God's word to God's people 
to feed his sheep, to get God's word to God's people. Now, it's not the only thing that I'm to do in my life, but I believe it is the main thing I am to do. That it is the main way I'm to be ambitious for the Lord. It is to get God's word to God's people. And so this has been one way the Spirit has given me power and strength. It's been in seasons of setback, in seasons of trying to decide what to say no to and what to say yes to. When I'm tempted to become dissuade or or deterred by the discomfort I see that awaits me and the pain that comes along with a calling like that. Oh, because of Christ's work in my life and because he set his face to the cross, I can set my face on this ambition to get God's word to God's people. But what about you? How has God called you to be ambitious for him? I don't believe we can be living obediently and and be unambitious Christians, Christians that have checked out, burned out and checked out. How is God calling you to expect great things from him and attempt great things for him? Now, let me clarify this one thing. I mean, in every sermon, there's probably 20 clarifications I could make, but, I'll, but I'll, let me just make this one kind of clarification to this. Uh, great things for God are typically not done on stages. They sometimes are, and I realize right now, proclaiming your, the word, you might see this as a, you know, a, a good and a, a great thing to do for the Lord, to proclaim his word. But typically, great things done for God are not on stages. They are in the shadows of life. They are in the valleys of life. They are in the setbacks and the disappointments of life. They are when our ambitions are delayed. Church, that is when we do great things for God, and no one might see it but him, but he is worth it. He is worth it. He set his face on the cross. He is a worthy king. And so don't hear me say, do great things for God, and think of just the, the, the fame and the, the, the lights and the, the stage great things for God. No, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God in the shadows in the valleys, behind closed doors, in the setbacks and disappointments of life, when your ambitions are delayed. Attempt great things for God to those that could never pay you back, that will never return the favor, that will never honor you amongst kings and those that are well-known. And church, know this, when our ambitions are delayed, know that God is not silencing our ambitions. He is sanctifying them. For godly ambition is from God's sovereign grace. Godly ambition is for God's glory and our joy. Godly ambition is empowered by God's spirit. And godly ambition is backed by God's word. May we, Franklin City Church, as a church and as individuals, be ambitious for God. Be ambitious for God. Let's pray.